This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to another episode of Money and Markets. I'm Dan Coatesworth and with me today is Danny Hewson. Hi Dan, yes, the markets have given us loads to talk about this week. After scrambling over the magic 7,000 mark, the FTSE 100 crashed spectacularly back under it just days later. We'll be looking at some of the factors behind the push-pull. And if you're looking to find income on UK stock markets, keep listening. I've been picking the brains of Richard Marwood from Royal London Asset Management. And this isn't a Netflix series, but maybe the streaming giant should be in the market after its disappointing results. But our very own Leith Kalaf has been chatting about the value of AI. Sadly, it doesn't mean robots, so maybe Netflix wouldn't be interested after all. But Chris Ford, who runs the Sanlam Artificial Intelligence Fund, says it can help all companies become more efficient. We'll have more on that later. Plus, the average house price has risen more than £20,000 in a year. Is it a bubble? Will it burst? We'll talk you through the numbers. Well, 7,000 was seen by lots of market watchers as a magic number last week, fuelled by optimism and some pretty stellar results from US banks. The FTSE 100 finally fought its way over the top for the first time since the start of the pandemic. And Dan, this was seen as a real marker, one lots of investors have been waiting for. Yeah, it's like a psychological one. You think 7,000... Um, you get past that, you think, okay, okay, this is all all going very well. We haven't seen this level since February 2020. So just as the stock market started to fall over, as the pandemic took hold, it was about 7,000. But yeah, we've just went over it for a single day earlier this week. But unfortunately, it's fallen back again. Yeah, all good things, as you say, come to an end. Tuesday was that day for the FTSE 100. Uh, By close of play, Almost 40 billion had been wiped off the value of shares. Now, watching things play out on Tuesday, there were a whole number of factors which contributed to the rapid drop. And not all of them were COVID related because we had some murmurings from Joe Biden's administration that it might place caps on the level of nicotine allowed in cigarettes. So we saw substantial falls in the share price of British American tobacco and imperial brands. U.S. futures were trading lower as investors there started to really ask questions about the potential of tech companies to meet earnings expectations. And we'll talk a bit more about Netflix later. Um, But then both the U.K. and U.S. saw um, travel stocks taking something of a pummeling. And that was definitely COVID related. In fact, all the talk about new variants really seemed to douse the fizz of optimism yesterday and really remind investors that we are only at the very beginning of the road to recovery and there could be plenty of speed bumps along the way. So a bit of repositioning and it was also felt over on Japanese markets today. But the FTSE 100's recovered a bit, Dan, though not the FTSE 250. So obviously we've got the vaccine still rolling out, um, certainly in the UK, at a very um, good pace and other parts of the world. But like you say, in Japan, there is talk of another lockdown in Tokyo, uh, which has not gone down very well with investors. India is struggling with COVID and is now on the red list for UK travel. And like I say, tax issues are really bubbling away in the background. I think Biden could turn out to be less friendly for businesses than the market previously thought. Well, 
What we've seen as well, of course, is US markets definitely reacting to some lockdown winners who perhaps potentially might end up becoming uh, recovery losers. And Netflix seems to be a prime example of this. Um, During lockdown, we had the streaming giant adding a whopping 15.8 million subscribers. Now, most people do expect the momentum can't continue because, you know, we're not stuck at home anymore. We have a choice about what we want to do. But what really threw markets overnight was how quickly that slowdown is being felt, despite places like the UK still being in lockdown between January and March. Six million new subscribers in the period had been projected. Instead, it came in at 3.98 million. And that shot wiped out about $25 billion off the value of the company's market cap in after hours trading. Now, Dan, I don't know about you, but I was a little surprised at the expectation of 6 million new subscribers because lots of Asia has been out of lockdown. And that's where a huge amount of Netflix growth has come from. And frankly, there's not been anything good on there added to watch. <laughs> I know you, you just thought that you know, in the last year, if you haven't signed up for Netflix, when on earth would you do it? And I know that they're clamping down on sharing of passwords, uh, which could prompt some people who've been effectively getting a free ride to, to sign up. But uh, yeah, I just think it's... For, for all streaming platforms, it's definitely a problem with there's just not enough strong products to get people in. If you look at cinemas, the demand is only ever as good as the film slate. And, and really, it's showing the same for streaming platforms. If they haven't got big hit films or real classic series that you, you can't find anywhere else, they might struggle to get people in. And I think this is an issue that um, certainly Netflix has said that the, the release has not been very good. The quality of the releases uh, certainly been questioned by lots of people, but um, it's suggesting that, you know, wait for the, for the rest of the year, things might actually pick up. Yeah. Disney, I think has been better at this because uh, the kids have got Disney plus and oh, just got to have a look as well. And I've been quite surprised by the amount of new series that they've got coming to the slate. And Netflix, as you say, they're going to be able to make more of a splash once all this new material comes through. Um, But, you know, I've been quite surprised, and I know you were, by Netflix's decision to take a chunk of cash, which they might have been able to use for new product, and instead they've bought back shares. What's that about? Yeah, it's going to say it's going to buy back up to $5 billion worth of shares. Now, immediately you think, okay, companies buy back shares when they've got nothing better to spend the money on. Now, typically those shares will be cancelled and that would make the earnings for each of the remaining shares increase. Um, You know, potentially that could push up the share price. But really, it suggests that there's no better use for that money in the business. But, you know, we just know that Netflix needs fresh content constantly to get people to one stay loyal and to get new people to subscribe. So really, you know, five billion dollars um, could be better spent on you know, content to keep it uh, at the top of the market. You know, you mustn't forget this: the competition in the space is intensifying, and you know Netflix cannot afford to make any mistakes at the moment. No, they can't. I mean, they're in a good position because. They're sort of market leader, really, aren't they? I mean, they led the way. But as you say, they're only as good as what people are talking about and what people want to watch. Um, 
that's been one fairly big upset, actually, and what otherwise has been a stellar earnings season in the US so far. It's significant that the upset comes from a tech stock because there have been warning that some of these businesses are too hot. Do you think markets are priced in potential disappointment or could we see more upsets? No, I'm not. I think at the moment, the market's expecting earnings to pick up for many companies. Tech stocks uh, have been slightly out of fashion recently. Markets are, are being rotated in, in preference of value stocks and, and tech companies are rated very highly. So um, I think that, I think expectations are there for them to keep doing quite well. But the market in terms of which shares they wanted to buy, in terms of investors, what shares want to buy it is, is perhaps elsewhere at the moment. But I think it will be later in the year that we could potentially get some big shocks where the level of earnings expected by people doesn't materialize. I think people are just looking at this and saying vaccines are there. As the year progresses, everything will start to turn back to normal. And I don't think that's going to be the case. So one of the big challenges for investors is finding reliable sources of income. Now, last year was a bit of a shock to the system with many companies cutting or suspending dividends during the pandemic. Now, things look like they are improving. So I thought it was worth getting Richard Marwood on the podcast to talk about finding income from UK stocks. And he's a UK equity income manager at Royal London Asset Management. So Richard, welcome to the show. Hello, Dan. So let's start, hopefully, with some good news. It does seem to me that companies are going to be in a stronger position to pay dividends again. Would you agree that's the situation? Um, certainly. I, I mean, if we look a year ago, in at the start of 2020, lots of companies were, were, were cutting dividends or deferring dividends. But some of them were only really doing so to be prudent and to wait and see what happens. Uh, and a lot of those are actually starting to pay dividends again, um, which is which is a good sign. I think dividend income's only going to recover really from here. Yeah. So do, do you think that companies perhaps used to be a bit too generous with their dividends and Actually, the pandemic was a perfect excuse for them to rethink their policies. Perhaps sort of say, we'll make a big cut now, but promise to grow from there. I certainly think that BT and Royal Dutch Shell spring to mind for sort of such a, um, a strategy. Yeah, I mean, certainly not all dividend cuts are the same. I mean, they, they happened last year for many, many different reasons. So I suppose if we look at things like banks, they stopped paying dividends last year and have come back at only lower levels this year because that's essentially what the regulator told them to do. Other companies, and it's interesting that, that you flag somebody like um, Royal Dutch, um, both Royal Dutch and BP have cut their dividends from very, very high levels. But actually, that's been around um, a change of strategy, essentially. So uh, in both cases, the oil companies are looking at energy transition and moving away from oil and into into um, other energy types. Uh, and the cut in dividends there has been in a way to fund that kind of strategy shift. So um, not all dividend cuts are, are, are the same. And uh, I think we are, having had those cuts, we are in a much better position to uh, to, to grow from here. Okay. So where, where are you sort of finding the best income opportunities now in the market? Um, well, the first thing I would say is is from lots of different areas. I, I don't ever really think it's very prudent to to just go down one sector angle, and it, it, that can happen actually in uh, in income funds because 
you can often find that income is concentrated in a, in a particular sector. But I like to, to sort of spread it as broadly across the market and, and as, across as many different industries as, as you possibly can. Um, and so, you know, just, just a few that, that I would, would highlight. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Royal Dutch Shell already. Even though they've cut their dividend, they still are paying quite an attractive yield, um, yielding about 4%, and it, it should be able to grow from here. So that's, that's quite an interesting one. Um, something like BAT, um, the, the tobacco company, they're, they're paying a very high yield. That's nearly 8%. Uh, a, fund, a, a stock that we've been adding to the fund recently is actually National Grid as well. Uh, so National Grid is the, um, the company that owns all of the pylons that, uh, that, that send electricity around the country, and they also own the, the gas distribution network. Um, I think that one's quite interesting, and it's probably a business that will see reasonable growth with energy transition, because we're probably going to start consuming more and more electricity, uh, and that's going to allow them to, to, to grow from here. Um, and maybe just sort of finally, maybe a stock that wouldn't traditionally have been uh, a classic income stock, but we've been buying Sage, uh, which is the, the, the company that makes accounting software. Um, I think that's a very interesting business. Um, it's got a very strong balance sheet. It's got a very repeatable business model. A lot of subscription revenues and, and repeatable income uh, and, and they're paying uh, around about three percent as a dividend yield at the moment and quite often the, the, the tech sector isn't something that naturally finds its way into an income fund because a lot of the stocks there don't pay big dividends but that actually seems like a, a quite quite a good one to uh, give a slightly different exposure for an income portfolio so something like british american tobacco has kind of been out of favor for a while is is it sort of a generous dividend yield actually uh the result of its share price falling um and perhaps the market saying we're not quite sure that's sustainable uh yield for the long term um there's always an element of that um i think to be a, an income investor you, you quite often have to be a little bit contrarian um and i would say that actually when you see a stock on a high dividend that is not always an attraction quite often it is a warning signal and when you get involved in these kind of companies that have high um, dividend yields you have to look at the business quite carefully and you look at their finances um, and you have to make a, a decision about whether that is sustainable but I would say in the case of something like British American Tobacco it is actually sustainable it's a very cash generative business it's paying down its debt quite quickly um, so they, they should be able to, to carry on paying that but it, it's a very important thing for income investors don't just get beguiled by a very high starting yield because it's often those very very high yields that get cut because they are unsustainable. So, what what do you reckon is a reasonable yield to expect from UK stocks going forward? Because I think historically, or certainly before the pandemic, you could get about four percent, couldn't you, from the FTSE one hundred? Is it now more more sort of three ish level to expect? Um, yeah, I mean, currently it's round about three. But it's three and recovering because there are still companies coming back to to uh, to, to paying dividends where, where they might have passed them last year. Um, if you look back into the last century, probably a typical div- dividend yield on the market was about five percent, um, and and that was pretty consistent across most of the 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 the, uh, the, the 20th century. It's been a little bit lower as we've um, sort of since the millennium, but that has been in part because interest rates have been so low. So I would sort of say, you know, three to four four percent seems you know a, a perfectly reasonable level. And to that point, I was making earlier, if a 
you've got a stock that is yielding you 10 in that environment, it's either an amazing opportunity or it's a real warning signal. Yeah, do you think it's probably more more likely to be the latter, do you think, than a you know an opportunity? Pro- probably eight out of ten times, yes, it is a warning signal. Yeah. But it, you know, it's a matter of finding those those two cases where it's not a warning signal, it's just a very good opportunity for something to invest in something that's very out of favour. Hmm. And I'm just wondering whether you thought that companies perhaps shouldn't always be paying dividends. I certainly think that there's there's several businesses that could put that money to better use, reinvesting it in their business. But um, you know, I'm I'm seeing the return of share buybacks from lots of companies. I mean, does that suggest that they can't think of any way that they can invest spare cash in their business? Um, or, or you know, should they try a bit harder? Um, I think it very much depends on where a business is in its life cycle. So, um, a younger business that's still growing very aggressively, clearly they should be ploughing the money back into to growing and, and getting the business to be um, to be bigger. But there are businesses out there that are mature, and you know maybe that if they were to to put money back into expansion, they'd be doing so and getting poorer and poorer returns all the time. So. Um, those businesses shouldn't be ploughing money back in. They should be thinking of a more balanced view about paying out dividends and uh, maybe retiring equity. So it very much depends um, on the company. In terms of share buybacks as well, I think it, what we've seen historically, it can sometimes happen that companies have an awful lot of cash available to them at a time when the business is going very, very well. Uh, and the share price is po- possibly quite high, and, and that's been the case in sort of some commodity areas. So you might find that some of the, the the mining and oil companies historically have bought back their shares at a point when they're trading at quite high levels, whereas actually you, you want the business to do the opposite. You want it to retire equity when it's quite cheap. That's when it adds value. So um, I'm afraid there's not, not one size to fit all in this one. It does depend on where the business is in its life cycle and also... Um, where the shares are trading at any particular point in time. Perfect. Well, Richard, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Fascinating to hear about the world of dividends. Thanks, Dan. There's some really informative stuff there, and we've got another great interview coming up. But before we hear from Chris Ford, I'd like to throw another number at you, if I can. How's 20,000? Well, if it's pounds, I'll happily take it. It is pounds, and you can have it, but only if you put your house on the market. Sorry. (laughs) It's the amount that the ONS says that average house prices have risen over the last year, and that's the fastest rate since 2014. Now, if you're a homeowner, this might be music to your ears because who doesn't want to see their house price go up? But the housing market is causing concern. I think it's a bit of a perfect storm brewing here, and it could be pretty costly to those who get caught in the downpour because... On one hand, you've got demand outstripping supply. Lots of people have been sitting tight. We've got older people thinking of downsizing. Well, they haven't wanted to have viewers through the doors up until this point. Now, of course, the vaccine rollout, that may change their minds. People on furlough have been waiting to see what happens to their jobs. And uncertainty and lockdowns have really led people to spend on improvements rather than look to move. Add to that, of course, the pause in house building, it's thrown off availability and supply is about 50% below normal. We've also got the stamp duty holiday. We've got 95% mortgages coming through, though many of those are not available for new builds. So there is a portion, a pull to act really quickly. And we've also got all those changes 
what people are looking for, which means that in some cases, some people are really prepared to pay over the odds for things like gardens and garages. And that's led to some analysts suggesting that people are scrambling to pay A-grade prices for B-grade properties. And all of those things are expected to keep adding hot air to this big balloon. And Capital Economics reckons we might get into double-figure growth by the summer. But what then? Yeah, lots of pitfalls. I've certainly seen it in... It's not just a UK situation. In the US, they've got... Um, a situation where people are paying considerably over the asking price. Where, you know, where so if you've been given an indication by the mortgage lender that you're being allowed to borrow, say, one point two million dollars, well, then you only really should be able to look at properties valued at nine hundred thousand dollars because it seems everything is going for you know up to twenty percent above the asking price. So I, I think that you know there's there's a property a potential property bubble building in various parts of the world. Yeah, data from Countrywide here in the UK shows that 28% of properties this year have sold for over the asking price. Now, I was looking back to 2015, and you normally see between 17 and 20% going for over the asking price. So this is a pretty big hike. And over the years, I've spoken to lots of people who've fallen foul of booms like this. You know, they bought at the high end of the market and the market drops and you're stuck with negative equity in the worst case, or faced with swallowing big losses when you eventually come round to sell. I mean, I'm a Yorkshire girl, so I know its charms, definitely, but there was a plot of land up here that went for 20% over its £4 million asking price. And a fabulous property in the Dales, it sparked a bidding war with not fewer than 15 offers. So. Wow. You know, buyer beware, because if you get into something like that, you could find yourself paying even more than you'd perhaps thought that you would for your dream home. So if you are looking to buy, you need to really make sure that you know the market, make sure that you can afford what you're buying, are aware, you know, what could happen to your mortgage if interest rates go up, what could happen to prices in the area when the bubble inevitably pops and you do need to move you know, so think about maybe renting in the interim if, if you have to move now, if you've got an idea of where you want to go, because if you don't have a train, then that can make you more attractive to sellers. And that might be worth more than the few extra thousand pounds. Otherwise, you'd have to pay up. Yeah, that's exactly what, what I did buying my current house. Now we were renting uh, for, for actually a couple of years just before we we moved and um it's incredible you know when, when you say to someone you say actually we, we, i'm not I'm not in a chain their eyes light up and say <laughs> i think i you know you you are much more attractive because you're not having to it's not that waiting game isn't it for people stuck in a chain so um, oh it's so complicated anyway isn't it and you can guarantee there'll be delays even if you don't have a chain something is going to go wrong when you buy a house it is about the most stressful thing that you can do <laughs> Yeah. So let's move on to the world of artificial intelligence. So lots of industries are adopting AI to make themselves much more efficient. And it's not just technology companies doing this. So Laith recently caught up with fund manager Chris Ford, who runs the Sam Lam Artificial Intelligence Fund. Now, it's a specialist fund investing in companies that benefit from advances in AI. And here's what Chris had to say. Today, I'm joined by Chris Ford, the manager of the Sanlam Artificial Intelligence Fund. Chris, welcome to the pod. 
Hi, Leif. Thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Now, I, I think most of us probably think of robots when we hear the word artificial intelligence, but actually it does mean a lot more than that. Can you give a, a, us a better, better definition? What does it mean to you? Yeah, so um, AI has been something which has been tricky to define for, for uh, 30 years, but more than that, for arguably 70 years now. You know, it's something which has been uh, a matter of some dispute in, in academic circles, quite apart from anywhere else. Our definition of, of AI builds on the work of a gentleman called Demis Asabis, who runs a company called DeepMind here in London, which is one of the real kind of luminaries um, in the firmament of the AI uh, world. And, and we say, building on, on his view, that AI looks to synthesize, to automate and optimize the process of converting information into useful and actionable knowledge. And what we like about uh, about this def- working with this definition of AI is that it gets two things really. It gets away from a very anthropocentric view of, of AI. You know, there, are, there are plenty of um, attempts to define AI that have looked to do so purely in terms of human intelligence. And of course, there are lots of different types of intelligence, and many of them very useful. Um, and um, and we, we've always felt that um, taking a more holistic view of the kind of intelligence that we're that we're looking to emulate um, is a more sensible um, re- and practical route forward. But it's that practicality, secondly, that we really like about the uh, about working within this definition of uh, of AI. The conversion of information into something that is useful and actionable um, is really what has um, been driving the adoption of artificial intelligence systems over the course of, you know, certainly the last three years, or maybe the last five years, not much longer than that, as various things have combined to make those um, systems um, addressable and approachable in the commercial market. Yeah, and I mean, your fund obviously has a very uh, strong focus on AI. That's what it does. But actually, half is is invested outside the te- tech sector. Can you just walk us through why that is? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> AI is inflecting all um, parts of the of the economy um, and all geographies um, in different ways and at different paces. But um, to think that AI is in some way ghettoized merely within the um, technology space is to we feel entirely miss the um, the, 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 the misapprehend the the nature of the opportunity set that stands in front of us. Some of the very um, greatest um, opportunities for AI to make a real difference. Um, lie in sectors outside of the technology um, space as far as the MSCI um, categorizations go anyway. So when we look at the opportunities for AI to make extraordinary um, impacts in spaces such as healthcare, for example, um, <clears throat> in spaces such as industrial services and technology, and quite uh, alongside the, the more traditional areas of industrial robotics, um, all of these parts of the economy sit outside the technology sector. And there's a variety of approaches that companies are using to uh, <clears throat> to uh, engage with the artificially intelligent world. Some, yes, are looking to go to technology companies who can sell them off the uh, peg solutions to their um, to their to, to their to their uh, uh, business process problems. Um, <clears throat> others are looking to develop their their own um, solutions. So, you know, an example might be a United Healthcare, for example, in the um, U.S. healthcare space, which has very deep pockets, a very large company, and has been a very great curator of data for well over a decade now. And um, you know, because they see this as a business critical. Uh, uh, feature of, of their field of operation, they have chosen to do a lot of the development work internally. And there are other examples of companies I can give you um, outside of the tech sector who are choosing to put their own um, R&D dollars to work developing their own um, AI solutions. And then other companies are looking to do somewhere in the middle, maybe take a, take something off the peg and then have it tailored for their own particular, uh, particular needs. So not necessarily do all the development internally, but um, try to leverage some of the uh, tools that are available off the off off the peg. So 
the um, barrier to engaging with AI is in many cases not the availability of the technology or the, the cost of the technology, but in many cases it's having the, the corporate culture which is sufficiently change-minded, um, having the relevant technical skills um, inside an organization such that the AI um, solutions can be engaged with productively, and frankly having somebody with the wit and, and, and imagination to understand how artificial intelligence systems could be used um, either to sufficiently increase the efficiency of existing business processes or indeed in some cases to completely reinvent business processes to make them much more fit for purpose. Yeah, and I think that's 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 kind of led you to op- opportunities outside tech in 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 areas um, you know like healthcare and and, um, and and finance. But you do have some big tech names in the portfolio, names like Alphabet and Netflix, which are really familiar to people, but probably not for AI. So, how have those stocks made it into the fund? So we have it. We use our, our, our own um, artificial intelligence system with which we've been working for getting on five years now. It's amazing how time flies. Um, uh, to allow us to discover all those companies in the world that are some, in some way meaningfully engaged with artificially intelligent systems. And th- that produces us an interesting and long list, objectively produced, of, of companies, some of which you might have expected to find um, are engaged with AI and in maybe some of the more normal places. You know, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that there's quite a lot of Silicon Valley companies that, that make it through our, into our investable universe. But there's quite a lot that comes through in, in, diff- in different ways. And what we found was that some of these companies were, were very early adopters of AI and were using it in very significantly disruptive ways to um, uh, uh, capture significant market share in parts of the world which had been you know, largely undisrupted for a long period of time. <clears throat> and Netflix is a very interesting um, case in that, in, 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 uh, in, in that circumstance. Um, so they use AI in a number of different ways. They use it you know, quite prosaically in respect of managing the way in which the um, the, the content is actually provided to you. So managing their, the, the the function of their streaming service, how, where their servers are, how you know what the bandwidth capacity looks like, how they manage that up and down dependent on on, on demand. Um, but more interestingly, they use it at the front end in respect of understanding their audience much better than any of their competitors and presenting the content that they have available in different ways to different uh, to different. Uh, different people um so i mean there's, there's quite a lot written on this that you can find online if you want to want to want to find uh, find out find out more about precisely how it works but it effectively means that they're in a much better way a better position to understand the the desires of their um, of their of their audience they're in a much better place then to make their, that content available because they obviously produce their own content they can tailor that content to what they understand about their audience making that content more relevant and therefore probably likely to be more consumed by that by, by their by their by their audience and keeping their audience engaged and of course audience engagement is now the watchword for so much of the um of, of, of the media space and almost all of that is dependent upon the artificial intelligence systems that provide that insight to those who end up taking the decision um in um in, in to, to the the programming decisions inside um netflix and of course it also in no small way inflects the way in which we as consumers engage with that content um you know around 90 percent of everything that consumers um watch through the netflix platform has been recommended to them using netflix's recommendation engine which of course is precisely the the, you know, the, the, the output of that artificially intelligent endeavor that's gone on within the organ within, within the within the organization so you know one of the things that we always ask ourselves uh, when we're looking at companies um, in the ai space is you know if a company's artificial intelligence system were to somehow evaporate in a puff of smoke overnight from what would it be that that company would be able to do uh, uh, to derive economic value from the following day and when we think about a company like Netflix we see a very very significantly impaired 
opportunity for them to continue to drive economic value if they're not able to continue to be um, highly relevant um, and engaged with their, with their customers. And, and it's, it's on AI that they rely for that feature. Yeah. And yeah, the Netflix algorithm is definitely watching you, isn't it? So, um, yeah, um, so, I mean, you, I mean, you have a really interesting job, I think, because actually you're kind of, you know, looking at and meeting companies that are kind of doing really impressive things at the very forefront of technology. What are the most groundbreaking bits of artificial intelligence that you have come across? I think you hit on a really interesting point there, Leif, that you know, we, we end up having a very different discussion with um, with companies than you might typically expect. It's certainly a different discussion than they are usually expecting when they meet with an investor. And that opens doors to us that um, uh, you know is is incredibly insightful when we when we are able to meet with people you know who would usually not be in a position to to be meeting with with investors. You, know, you end up learning an awful lot more about the companies that you have you have an interest in. Um, and so we have this very different um, different prism through which we, we view the world. I think when we think about what we've seen in the course of the last last year or so from a, from an AI perspective, we we continue to see I mean fairly extraordinary um, breakthroughs. Um, and I won't kind of list them all, but one that really I think caught my eye and, and didn't get anywhere near the, the coverage that I think it fully deserved last year in the press here in the in the UK was an extraordinary achievement that came out of DeepMind, which is um, uh, now owned by by Alphabet, it's based here in London, in the UK, um, and they did something pretty extraordinary again. I mean, this is a company that's done several extraordinary things over the course of the last five or ten years. Um, when they took part in in something called the CAST trial, the CAST, CAST stands for Critical Assessment of uh, Structure Prediction, and it's the it's the uh, scientific experiment which is used to um, evaluate the competency of um, uh, platforms that look to understand protein structure. And specifically, the way in which proteins fold. Um, and this is a very, very important consideration in the uh, in bioscience. Um, understanding um, protein, how proteins, um, a protein shape is determined from the structure of its amino acid sequence, um, is something which has been, you know, cap- we've been capable of doing, but it's been, we've been doing it very slowly because we, it involves some um, very um, uh, intensive X-ray crystallography to do it through traditional means. So finding a way to scale this up has been a bit of a holy grail for bioscience for a very long period of time. And last year in November, DeepMind's platform were able to achieve results that were at or uh, basically at the same level as those achieved using traditional means. And that's incredibly important because there are millions and millions of proteins that need to be sequenced and, that, and we need to understand how they how they work. And doing them one by one on the bench top is something which is um, which is clearly not not a, a, a greatly viable viable solution. So this offered a, a a window into a completely new world in which protein um, structure can be better understood, and that matters to all of us on this call because when we think about how we all age and the kind of illnesses that we we, we now begin to understand are going to be characteristic of an aging global population, things like Alzheimer's and so on. Um, and other forms of dementia, many of these are thought to be a function of um, changing protein folding um, behavior inside the human body. So understanding how that works could well be the key to understanding how we can better treat or perhaps even indeed avoid these, um, these these illnesses and many others besides. And so we have, I think that's one of the, one of the most extraordinary things that we've seen to come out of the, the AI space. And that could not have been done without the, the, the AI um, uh, uh uh, techniques that were brought to bear to put some numbers around that um the alpha fold platform which was alpha um platform which did this um twice as good 
as the next best, best non-AI-based platform. We have a position in, in Alphabet in the portfolio in a company that in the, the parent company that continues to do these extraordinary things. Um, but we also have a position in the, in the portfolio in a company called Schrodinger, which is a company which um, has a really interesting physics-based uh, model for um, uh, basically molecular discovery. Um, and this is, you know, the, the company that are at the practical end of understanding of of, of what DeepMind are, are looking to achieve. Because, of course, if you can understand what the what the, how how proteins um, uh, are uh, fold and and and, uh, and so on, you're in a much better position to then go and look for the specific molecules that you wish to bind to those proteins um, in the drug discovery process. Um, and so, Schrodinger is a company that uses um, uh, machine learning to scale up. Um, the process of modeling molecules using a um, a, uh, a physics-led uh, um, approach um, uh, to uh, to look for properties that have the desirable properties that are required for drug discovery in a particular field. And so this, this uh, discovery from this development from Alphabet um, will really significantly, in our view, accelerate the rate at which a more computationally intensive um, approach to drug discovery becomes the norm rather than the more benchtop-led um, approach that we've seen over the course of the last, uh, last few years. And I think just lastly, to kind of round that out, um, from a practical perspective, we saw very significant process made in the development of vaccines for the COVID-19 COVID virus in a time frame which I think you know, previously many would have thought would be almost impossible. And of course, that was made possible by the utilisation of some of these leading-edge computational discovery techniques, which uh, maybe had been uh, had been uh, less um, uh, less utilised in the in, in the past. And I think you know that one of the outcomes of of the COVID period has been in the case of the drug discovery um, process that uh, companies now are forced to think differently about the resources they use and and what they should expect of themselves and their scientific um, uh, efforts in respect to the timeframes um, involved in drug discovery. Yeah, I think we're all slowly becoming ex experts in, in spike proteins, aren't we? But that is, I think, the first um, conversation I've had today about pro protein folding, and I suspect it will be a last. But uh, <laughs> uh, listen, Chris, thanks. That's really interesting stuff. Thank you for joining us um, today, and hopefully we'll um, catch up with you a bit further down the line. Thanks, well, I'm disappointed about the lack of robots, but Jen did bring us the robot dog, which relieved itself by pulling the perfect pint last week. So I guess I shouldn't complain. And she'll be back next week with more Money Madness. And you've got a really interesting appointment to keep. So, yes, I'm going to be talking to the manager of the second best performing investment trust since ISIS began back in 1999. So join us next week to hear some of the secrets of his success. Thanks very much for listening. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.